Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we're coming to you from Tribeca 2021. It's 20 years. They're celebrating. Let's get into this because there has been some absolutely amazing films that have come out of Tribeca 2021 this year. Uh, you had the Anthony Bourdain documentary Roadrunner. Highly recommend you checking that out. Uh, Steven Soderbergh's new film, No Sudden Move. Uh, the amazing true story of The Kids. The film, The Kids. Uh, about the making of Larry Clark and Harmony Kareen's absolutely groundbreaking film, Kids, from the 90s. Uh, highly recommend checking that out. Larry Flint for President. All the Streets are Silent. You had Poser. Kubrick by Kubrick, Dick Gregory, Novice, you had the new Banksy documentary, Squad, Last Film Show, The Price of Freedom, All These Sons, the new Blondie uh, documentary, Viva on La Habana, it is a amazing little uh, concert film of Blondie getting to play Cuba, I highly recommend you check that one out as well. The Legend of the Underground, uh, The First Step, which is Van Jones' uh, new documentary. You had Italian Studies, uh, Hot Off Vanessa Kirby's Oscar. uh, It should have been Oscar-winning role uh, earlier this year, but this is her new film. Settlers from Wyatt Rockefeller, Primera, Asking For It. There was some... There was some standouts, uh, and we got to talk to a few people. So first up, from the film Accepted, this is Dan Chen on our Tribeca 2021 coverage. What drew you to this film? Why Accepted and why now? Totally. So uh, the uh, viral videos came out, I think, in late 2017. And one of the producers on this film, Jason Wiley, he had seen them. And he was interested in kind of doing a documentary around the school. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, one of the producers, Jason Wiley, he had saw these viral videos and he was interested in uh, kind of producing a documentary about the school. And I think when I heard about the story and what pulled me to it was the idea that obviously like these viral videos were really filled with joy and emotion. And they had also sparked kind of, the media and the country's attention for many reasons, right? Uh, Because maybe people were surprised that these kids were getting into these schools or, uh, you know, whether there was a positive surprise or, oh, I never thought that could happen. And kind of something I was interested in was kind of examining, like, why would these kids getting into these schools spark so much attention? And, uh, and what's it like being a kid at the center of all that attention? You know, what is it like being a kid who attends the school? And what's it like as kind of a, an entry point into any kid's college admissions process, which is such a stressful and fraught time? So what interested me was kind of being able to perhaps see a college admissions senior year, like from the points of view of these students going through it. And so uh, ultimately the structure of the film that I was kind of pitching and what we ended up making was being able to see one senior year through the eyes of four students that went to this school. Well, and you have such a great hand in in the technical side of of how you do all your filmmaking. You're really Mm -hmm. hands-on in the cinematography. Is this really important for you? And what would you say you've learned the most from being this director, cinematographer, and do you see that that kind of collaboration with yourself going forward? Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, when I started, like, taking an interest in making films and filmmaking, I think, yeah, the, the gravitation towards the camera. And even when I was starting out, like, when I was 14, I would always have an easier time, like, thinking up cool shots or thinking up different ways of shooting things. Uh, and then talking to actors was super scary for me. And I wouldn't know, know what to say to them. Um, so definitely like just starting out throughout film school. And then as I entered, uh, the film industry, uh, definitely cinematography was like a really strong entry point for me, like thinking in terms of images, thinking in terms of how images can help tell a story, 
and how like style can serve a story rather than style kind of just take attention on its own. And so, and then part of it for this film in particular for Accepted was kind of knowing how kind of rough and tumble our budget and our, and our crew footprint would be. Um, you know, obviously we work with uh, really talented cinematographers, the main one being Daphne Wu. Um, you know, we had the fortune of working with them, but I really knew that we would be really stripped down sometimes. And sometimes it would just be one person with a, you know, small a Sony A7S II camera. And that would help make it feel intimate, like, you know, we were just one of the people along for this ride that the students went on. And so I guess that was also important to me to kind of preserve this really grounded uh, point of view. And so I kind of wanted to, the camera to feel really lo-fi, like as if one of the students themselves was making like a video documenting their senior year and, and without like most of the bells and whistles, I think uh, most documentaries would have access to. Do you think that you were holding off on this film for a Tribeca release? Was this really the festival that you wanted it to premiere at? Yeah, without going too far into kind of the politics of like um, festival admissions and selections, like I think one thing we were super excited about as far as Tribeca was the fact that they were going to be one of the first to have in-person screenings coming out of this crazy time for all of us. And we were just like really excited at the idea of premiering in front of an audience and kind of having, using this as an opportunity for people to kind of reunite and, and, and see this film together. And I'm also really excited students themselves that were in the movie, they're going to have the chance to, you know, come out and, and watch this with an audience and, and kind of have this time to reflect and, and honestly get a trip to New York, I think, which is going to be exciting for them as well. Um, so yeah, that's, I think I'm really excited about this. Did you think this was a particularly easy or hard film to make? And what were some of your biggest challenges making this, this kind of a film? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have to laugh for a second because, um, I think for me, this is probably, I hope it's one of the hardest films that I, uh, as far as making it goes. And I say that because obviously during the film itself, a lot of things happened that were unexpected and a lot of things affected the students in the film and the community that we were following in a really adverse and, and stressful way. And so that was part of it. I think the making of it was just logistically difficult, um, making sure we were doing a good and honest and respectful job as filmmakers while being on a shoestring budget, while questioning our own intentions and access and into the story at every point along the journey, um, all the way through going into the editing room and having mountains and mountains of interviews and issues that we want to explore. And then ultimately going through the kind of tough decisions as far as cutting certain characters, cutting certain interviews and, and boiling it down to the essence of what we set out to do in the first place, which is let's see the school year through these students' eyes. Um, it was like a, it was an educational process for me. Uh, and it's a, I guess it's ironic because the film is about exploring like what is education, what does it mean, and um, hopefully the audience takes away some of that uh, as well. So I would just say, you know, long story short, it, it was an incredibly tough film to make. I'll just say, um, but I'm really glad that it's it's getting out there now and that people will be able to see it. Well, and having a documentary as your first feature, are you going to continue down the documentary path? Or are you thinking a little bit more narrative going forward? Yeah, so I think I'm pretty open either way. I think, um, I think it'll probably happen in terms of story first, whether, whether that story is a true story that's happening uh, or it is a story that is fictional. Um, I think I just, I'll, I'll go to whatever the story is. Um, I kind of have a background in both narrative and documentary, and I think more and more we're kind of seeing seeing the lines blur as far as what it means to be a filmmaker. I don't think the lines between documentary and narrative are going to be as hard and fast. I mean, especially like when you look at like, say like the work that Chloe Zhao is doing and you're like, Hey, like that kind of feels like a documentary, but it's also a scripted work. And 
you're kind of just seeing, um, I don't know, exciting possibilities as far as filmmaking goes in the future. So I'm open. To piggyback on that question, what can we expect from you coming up? Uh, so, uh, this company I worked with on accepted Jubilee media, uh, we're actually developing a feature film story around, uh, it's a coming of age story about college admissions and elite college admissions at that. So, and we kind of didn't really intend this to be a a thematic tie, but that's actually something we're working on that I'm really excited about. Um, and then beyond that, I'm just, uh, I'm still gathering story ideas and working with a writer or two and, we're just we're just slowly cooking stuff up that uh that'll be next dan thank you so much for coming on the show um it's a really beautiful film i hope everybody checks Mm. it out in person if you don't have an opportunity Mm. to be in tribeca it's it's a film that should be on your radar it really is it's fantastic and 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 i hope nothing but good things come for this for you so thank you so much appreciate it thank you next up from the film not going quietly Nicholas Bruckman, and right after that, we have from the film Reflection, A Walk With Water, director Emmett Brennan. Please enjoy. When did you believe that film could change the world, or do you actually believe that, and maybe you're trying to prove to yourself and everybody else that maybe it can change the world? Yeah, I think my career and my work is about trying to prove that to myself and others. I don't think I don't have moments of doubt. I think there are times where I wonder the impact of stories, but then I meet people like Adi Barkin and it renews my faith. And then I spend a couple of years diving into the film um, and making a, and telling that story in order to change the world. But I, I don't necessarily think the film changes the world. I think the audience does. And the film is a tool amongst others that they can use. So that's, that's kind of the motto and something embedded into not going quietly. Well, it's great that Biden's in office now and, and everything else. But do you think that we as a society, as a civilized society, are, are really doing enough for sustainable change going forward? Do you mean like uh, as American citizens or... Yeah, everybody. Well, like, like North American as as the bigger chunk here, but really as as citizens of the world, do you honestly think? And and and, like you you had a subject that I'm I'm sure it gave you a little bit of hope, but then you get outside away from filming him and you see the rest of the world reacting and behaving. Are are you hopeful? That's true. Well, I do think it's an incredibly hopeful time for this country. I think there's a lot of real change that's happened. And I think it's easy for people in the social justice or progressive movement not to see that change. Um, But there's so many things that, you know, even in my lifetime, we've come so far along, um, right? Issues like gay marriage or... Um, you know, the, the victories that have been made in the, in the racial justice movement over the last year. So I do think it's an incredibly hopeful time, but certainly not one to get complacent, um, which often happens in these cycles, right? The pendulum swings one way and then people become really activated and then it swings the other and, and people um, relax. But no, I think it's important that people right now become engaged. If, if you're of the, you know, progressive or uh, social justice um, uh, set of, of values, having a Democrat in office is not going to achieve the victories that you're looking for, the victories Adi's fighting for. And a lot of what Not Going Quietly is about is certainly using civic engagement and storytelling to win elections, as Adi does, um, but then after the election to hold the politicians accountable. And that's what this bird-dogging tactic that you see in Not Going Quietly is about, where the activists confront the politicians directly armed with cell phones. And what I think is interesting, speaking of stories changing the world, is that certainly I hope that documentary films do, but on a micro scale, what Adi and the Be A Hero movement do in the film is they travel across the country armed with cell phones and Twitter, and they go and they find where the politicians are located. They confront them and they use people's individual stories 
as many, almost little mini films, put them online and shame the politicians. And of course, as Adi says, we can't change the politician's mind, but we can highlight the stakes for the American people. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people are afraid to participate in the kinds of conversations that you're talking about, whether it be about complex policy issues or how should our healthcare system work. They just know something's wrong with it, but they're afraid to speak up because they're not experts. But what um, Tracy Corder, who's the activist in the film and the movement who uh, trains activists to, to raise their voices, says is everybody's an expert on their lived experience. So even if you don't know the ins and outs of the differences between um, a public option and a universal health care bill, you know based on your experience and you're an expert based on your experience that the current system isn't working. And so people should feel empowered to raise their voices, tell their stories, um, whether it's a long form film or a clip on Twitter of, of you know, what you believe. When did you first find out what Audie was doing? How early in his movement were you even there? Yeah, I met Adi in uh, spring of 2018, and it was just after he met Jeff Flake on that plane, which was the moment that really catalyzed him to fame. Adi had been diagnosed a year earlier with ALS, and he had spent his entire life as an activist fighting all, for all kinds of causes, but usually it was kind of other people's stories he was telling. He was a relatively privileged, white, Yale graduate lawyer um, involved in a whole, a whole range of economic and social issues that we didn't get time to tell in the film because so much happens later. And then he gets this terrible, devastating diagnosis, like out of like lightning out of clear blue sky, he says. And that diagnosis kind of shuts him up for a while. He goes inward, he retreats, he doesn't tell a story. In fact, he doesn't even tell a lot of family and friends about his diagnosis. And then one day, when the Republicans propose the tax cut that's going to cut into health care, he kind of realizes that his story is really the story that matters. And when he gets on that airplane and sees, of all people, Jeff Flake, the deciding vote on this bill, it's this catalytic moment of kismet where it, it feels like his, he's meant to tell his story. And after that, he became the face of the broader healthcare movement, became a sort of progressive hero. And Liz Jaff, his partner in crime, who you meet in the film, uh, had a mutual friend of mine in common, and she reached out to me to actually make a short film uh, just a short video launching the campaign. And so I flew out to Santa Barbara. I thought it was going to be kind of a sad, somber interview with this ailing father about his son and about healthcare. And immediately I realized Dottie was the basically funniest person I'd ever met. You know, you see in the film that he starts the interview with his shirt off, and that was one of the first things I ever shot with him. And I realized how incredible he was as a character, as a storyteller, and also that he was gonna be on this incredible trajectory where he was becoming more powerful as his body faded. It was this almost um, you know, in your face uh, tension between the, the visual of what was happening to him and, and the narrative. And so even at that moment doing this little short promo film with him, we knew right away that we had to pitch him on making a film because he was already losing his voice. And when I met him, he had that kind of slow cadence that you see at the beginning of the film. And he says in the film, I've got a lot to say and not a lot of time to say it. And that's how we felt. So we had to capture all of our master interviews with him right away, um, which is a pretty unusual and, and tricky spot for a documentary filmmaker. A lot of the time you try to navigate this access over months or years um, with your subjects or characters. And in this case, we had to kind of move really quickly, which is one of the unique challenges in making this film. What were some of the other challenges making this film? Did you find that was that was the hardest bit of of this entire process? Well, making a film about somebody with a devastating disease like this is really hard when it's a real story because I became really close to Adi making the film. And of course, you know, the spoiler alert is Adi is alive and well and still doing his best work. So it's not too somber. But still, it's really hard to see somebody you know and grow to love go through this disease. So that was really challenging emotionally, and it took kind of a bigger support team around me that were working on this film, um, like my producer and our executive producers, who um, you know really helped uh, shape and, and tell the story with me and navigate the, the relationships and the complexities of the project. Um, and yeah, that issue around his voice, I would say, wasn't just tough in terms of production or access, but it was really tough in terms of editing, as you know from, from all of your conversations with filmmakers. A lot of times you 
find the story and post, or you go back and you re-interview your subjects. That wasn't an option here. By the time we'd finished principal photography, Adi couldn't speak anymore. And so we had this really interesting narrative constraint where we had to use his voice in the exact state. You could tell even three weeks later how he sounded differently. And so that just created this crazy kind of production constraint. And, and because of that, a lot of the film is in cinema verite, meaning we followed the scenes and we shot the action as it was happening. There's no expert interviews or um, kind of talking heads in the film. It's really because we needed, the, we needed to film the story as it unfolded because everything was moving so fast with the progression. And that meant we had to shoot hundreds of hours um, in the field. That whole road trip was a whole crazy experience, which I'll tell you about <laughs> uh, as we go on. Well, no, please tell me about that road trip. <laughs> sure. Well, that was, yeah, I mean, that was a very unique production challenge as well because um, that was really kind of the catalytic moment and forms the second act of the film where Adi and his merry band of activists decide to take what he did with Jeff Flake on the road and empower other sick people, disabled people, to go find their Congress people wherever they are and confront them with their stories armed with, armed with cell phones and, their, and, their, and these trainings that they give. And we got our own RV, our production RV, and followed along, except they were moving so quickly, going from one event to the next, that we had to like try to drive twice as fast as they did, be where they were arriving, get set up, film Adi getting out. But Adi was just so relentless. And of course, we had all the typical like road movie issues where the RV broke down and it got flooded with shit water and you know every um, kind of road trip foible you could imagine. But adding to that, trying to like shoot and edit with five sweaty filmmakers in an RV. So it was um, certainly a very memorable experience, um, but I would definitely do hotels next time. <laughs> well, how early on did you get the Duplass brothers to, to be involved in this? And were they, were they really instrumental in helping the end result? Yeah, so we got in touch with the Duplass brothers through Bradley Whitford, who's an actor well-known for The West Wing and Handmaid's Tale and Get Out and, and many others. And he and Adi are actually quite close personal friends. Bradley actually officiated his wedding. And so uh, Bradley saw some... Bradley, Adi connected Bradley and us, and Bradley said, well, I know some guys who um, help support documentaries, and that was Mark and Jay. And we flew out to L.A. We showed them about 15 minutes of footage and really landed with kind of showing them the really funny stuff, you know, Adi getting high and all the um, scatological and, um, you know, risque humor in the film, which of course really drives it. And we thought, um, you know, that really resonated with Mark and Jay because I think they knew how important it is to embed even these serious films with, with humor. And Adi, of course, does a great job of that. And so they came in pretty early. They were um, investors on the film and helped us get it made um, from a financial standpoint and also gave a lot of great creative notes. Um, so we would show cuts to them uh, at different stages and they um, would always come back with, with critical feedback. We did a great feedback screening at their office in LA. They have a really cool kind of old mansion where they cut all their stuff out of. And, um, you know, it was really awesome for me um, as somebody who admires them a lot in their careers and, how they've managed to transition between narrative and documentary to get to work with them. Uh, they had recently completed um, Wild Wild Country around the time when I met them, or I guess it had been a little while, but Wild Wild Country is just a project that and, and series that I really deeply admire. And um, that was what made me want to work with them because I knew they had the eye for how to tell stories that have deep, significant social issues, but are just kind of hilarious and shocking and, entertaining on their surface level and that's what i i hope this film is well you you hit uh south by southwest just with a bang and now you're at tribeca has this felt like a whirlwind and are these two festivals that you really wanted this film to play at from the beginning were they like really important to you these particular two yeah they, they definitely were um both of them and i will say they were completely different because of course the other elephant in the room here is just getting this movie out in the middle of the pandemic and what that's been like. And in some ways, I'm, I'm talking to you right now from a very hot car in the Sedona Film Festival, um, where it's about 105 degrees, but it's one of the next few opening in real life. And just rewinding to March, South by Southwest was amazing. Of course, it was totally virtual. So no cast or crew get together, no award ceremonies, none of the stuff that I 
and you kind of have come to you come to love and is that joy that you feel after that catharsis you get after years of working on one of these things is to get that and so we didn't have any of that but we did have this amazing experience of winning two awards including the audience award and the documentary competition and it was really important for me to play there because South by Southwest has launched so many um, really important um, political documentaries and I think it's um, you know really a kind of cultural center um, you know I'm thinking about films like Running with Beto and um, other kinds of um, real like American stories and that's that's what this is and not all my work is like that but this is really like a portrait of America and I think they're you know South by was just incredible and and the reception we got was really great even though it was a virtual reception and then Tribeca 100% um, we had gotten some support from Tribeca um, but I had never screened a film there before I'm a native New Yorker um, raised in New York City Adi's from New York City um, not born there but spent a lot of his career there and that happened in real life just this past weekend on Saturday was our IRL premiere. Um, it happened at Hudson Yards in a giant outdoor screening. And um, Adi played a recorded message, um, you know, on the is dedicated to the Tribeca audiences and talking about how he fell in love on the banks of the Hudson River with his wife, Rachel. Rachel flew out from Santa Barbara. So we really got a sense of that reunion. And it was really just amazing for, you know, my mom and uh, you know, partner came out. And so that was that moment of really feeling like, oh shit, we did this and, and we got it done and, and we're getting it out. Um, and zooming ahead a little bit, um, what I'm, what I'm most excited about, and we'll see how this evolves as we come out of the pandemic is that, um, out of, out of South by Southwest, um, Greenwich Entertainment, the distributor of Free Solo, pick the movie up for U.S. release, and they will be releasing it in theaters nationwide on August 13th. And that, to me, has been really exciting. Um, I've, I've worked on other films that have had small theatrical releases, but this, is, this is, feels like a big jump for me, and really, most importantly, a, a great opportunity for people to see the film and, and elevate its profile. So um, I'm really excited about that. We'll see if people are coming out to movie theaters in August. Um, uh, and then subsequently, of course, they will do a, you know, digital and, and, and uh, Blu-ray release and all that. And I hope it one day lands, finds its way on your shelf behind you. What can we expect from you future projects coming up? That is a good question. So I'm doing a lot of work. We're really focused on the distribution now. And then I'm working um, on a lot of kind of other projects with, with Adi and the Be A Hero team um, as a kind of background to this work, I run a production company in New York called People's Television, and we do a lot of um, storytelling work for brands. So we work for Black Lives Matter, we work for Facebook, doing kind of social issue storytelling, but in the short digital, for, digital form. And um, so that, that, that has me um, quite busy doing a lot of election work and stuff like that. But I am um, developing my next feature documentary. Uh, I just can't announce it right yet. We just did our first shoot um, last weekend um, at the Bitcoin Miami conference. So that gives you a hint of what the subject matter might entail. But um, I can't get into the specifics just yet, but I would really hope to come back on your podcast in a, a later date once we've got that ready. You are always welcome. You are a friend of the show now. Thank you so much for coming on, Nicholas. It really means a lot to me. I hope everybody checks this film out. It's really fantastic. It has such that Tribeca vibe to it that I hope everybody just loves it over the next few days on the online screenings and everybody goes and checks it out in August and picks it up digitally or on DVD, Blu-ray. Thank you so much for coming on. Awesome. Yeah, folks can follow along on our social media pages um, at notgoingquietlyfilm.com. Thank you so much for the opportunity to chat about it with you and to share Adi's story. Why this film and why now? Yeah, there's that question. It's a great one. Um, why this film is just that, that I personally, like so many others, am feeling a lot of deep grief and rage and confusion and irreconcilable feelings around what's happening globally, environmentally, politically, socially. There's just a lot that's hard to wrap the mind around and yeah, so as a filmmaker and a storyteller, I wanted to try to find a way of offering and being, try to find a way to be of service to this moment. And 
um, through some life experiences and studies and learnings and previous film projects, I just really came to see that water is at the heart of so much of what's occurring, especially environmentally. So much of the environmental unraveling and species extinction and ecosystems collapsing and all these things that we're aware are happening are largely a product of our relationship with water. So I wanted to kind of dig into that and then find a way to tell a hopeful story and orient people towards an uplifting possibility of where we can go and, and how we can redesign human life and human systems around a, a, a different understanding of water that could allow our species to endure and thrive for, you know, generations. Yeah. You leave us being optimistic, but I have to ask, are you yourself optimistic? Do you see the path forward as being a good thing right now? Or do you think that really we're not doing enough still and, and time is ticking and really there needs to be change right, right this second. Like we can't wait anymore. Gosh, you know, I don't know how that really lives in me. It's a big question mark. I don't always feel hopeful, honestly, but there's so much beauty to tune into every moment and every day. So I definitely start there. And um, yeah, it's just a big mystery what's going to happen here. We have so many people on this planet and there's such an immense momentum to the direction that we're going. And the direction we're going right now is definitely one that's, you know, eroding the conditions for life but we totally have the tools and the ability to learn and 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 course correct i really believe that i, I believe there's a certain simplicity to how we could redesign our lives and still live really well so yeah i don't know <laughs> <laughs> being a first-time filmmaker well feature filmmaker what would you say you learned the most from this project and I guess what are some of your biggest takeaways of of making kind of this this big of a scope of a film for your first film, really? For sure, yeah. Yeah, I was just talking about how this, this has been a five-and-a-half-year project. And, you know, one of the challenges from working on a project for so long is how you keep it relevant and, and current. So, like, after five-and-a-half years, I've grown a lot as a human, as an individual, but the content of the film has in some ways stayed more, more static. And so there's been this thing of how do I grow with, with the project? Um, so it's been a big learning for me about just how to be in a certain rhythm and step away when I need to and what practices are there to keep the creative process alive and rich and moving like water, not letting it get too stagnant. So that's definitely been a big learning. And then the other thing is I totally went into this project with very not a very clear idea of what the ultimate story would be. I just had, I was, I was led by questions and followed the questions where they led, um, but definitely didn't have some sort of mapped out structure of the story ahead of time, which is another way to do it. And I'd be curious to do another film or a project with more structure ahead of time. I wouldn't change anything about the way that I've gone through this process because it's just been what it's been and it's fed me in so many ways. Um, but certainly could, could have shortened the timeline of this project if I had a bit more clarity on... I mean, water is such an enormous topic <laughs> that if I had been able to kind of hone in on the storyline ahead of time. I might've been able to whittle down some of the eddies that I went into and the little rivers that took me over here and then over here, but it was a great journey all the same. So, well, what would you yeah. say some of your biggest challenges were then making the, this scope of a film as a first time filmmaker? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to storytelling. I think I've, had to really learn how to tell a story, you know, <laughs> prior to this, I, I produced another feature length film, but I wasn't the editor or the director and wasn't responsible for the storytelling. So I, all the things that I've hit, uh, previously been responsible for creating and telling have just been like three to five minute little short films that are 
kind of just like trailers, you know, which is a totally different kind of storytelling than a feature length. So, um, yeah, a lot is, is just how to bring out the, the intimacy and the, how to create space for the viewers to connect with the subjects and just, I can give an anecdote or a, a kind of more specific learning, which was just like giving space for a scene. And when I'm editing these shorter pieces and these trailers, you're kind of just moving really quickly between things. And, and it took me a while to realize that I needed to just build in a lot more breath and slow down a lot in, in creating a feature length and let people drop in and let people connect to specific characters and have scenes that aren't necessarily taking you or like always pointing you to the next thing, but they're just like catching you for a moment. That's a kind of a funny way to answer your question. But I think it's a great way of answering the question. Yeah. What would, how, I guess, have you always been under the mindset that film or art in general can change the world? Has this always been something at, at the core of your values? I don't know that it's always been there, but it certainly is there now. And it, and I think the way that it's primarily how I view it now is that we're so driven by story, you know, like we all have these collective agreements as a society that we operate around. And those agreements come because we collectively believe a certain story or an idea of something. Um, and art and filmmaking is all about story and getting people to maybe question the stories that we have. In this instance, you know, like a collective story we have in the develop development of our cities and in LA, which the film talks about is like, we don't want water in our cities. Like we, any water that falls in the city, we want to run to the nearest river Creek and then out to the ocean. Like in LA, they don't capture, they historically have not allowed themselves to capture and utilize the water that falls on it. Cause there was the fear and the risk of what the water would do to the infrastructure and so on and so forth. So they just, you know, we put it into gutters, into drains and out to the ocean. And, you know, that's just not a very compelling or good story. And it's a story that's led us into a paradigm where we're not only dehydrating LA itself and not allowing LA to be a self-sustainable system, but it makes LA have to pull water from hundreds of miles away from other ecosystems and desiccate and desertify those places and remove those places from their ability to help manage the climate through the small water cycle, which maybe we'll get into, maybe we won't. But the point is that, that all comes from a story of our engineering ideas and we can change that story. We can actually redesign our cities to be like ecosystems where they capture and store water recycle and we can have creeks and streams in cities and yeah what our cities could look like could be vastly different than how they are right now if we believe that's possible well before you even got into this project how vast was your knowledge on water and what would you say was your biggest takeaway from doing this project what was the thing that you learned the most yeah i would say my knowledge of water was incredibly limited and in in many ways it is still incredibly limited um, though I've certainly come into a much deeper personal relationship with water through this pro project. But I grew up on the East Coast. There was an abundance of water there. It's just never on my mind. It took growing up and moving out to California and having a very different relationship with water scarcity to kind of be shaken into a recognition that I even have a relationship with water. And then to realize that I have no idea where my water comes from usually or how everything is informed by water and yeah so just that's such a, it's been a great place to begin is like where's the water coming from that i'm drinking and using and where's the water going that i'm showering with or whatever i mean i actually live where i live i live on this little forested hilltop and our shower is just this little kind of outdoor wooden platform set up so the water that we're showering with is actually just running back into the ground. And it's a 
kind of surprisingly, but unsurprisingly profound experience to feel that circle, like the water is coming from the land here through a well, coming up, I'm showering with it, and then it's just going back into the aquifer right here. And living here for these last many years has made it so that when I go somewhere else and take a shower, I feel the flattening of that circle. I, I feel like I have no idea where this water is coming from, one, and then I have no idea where it's going. It's obviously not going back into the, the ground or back into the place, this place. It's going somewhere else. Um, yeah, so I'm acutely aware of that kind of line flattening, and, and I feel the dehydration of that. Yeah. I. I feel like growing up on a farm and, and I, I have, I grew up the exact same way. We had our well and it went right back in. So I've definitely always noticed that, um, for anybody that hasn't checked out your cabin, they, they most certainly need to, you have one of the coolest cabins out there. Oh, thanks. Man. I think that thing's amazing. But thanks. This is such a great film for Tribeca. Like it's such a Tribeca mm. film. What did it mean to you when you got accepted to this particular festival? Because it's, to me, it's such a perfect fit. Wow, I'm so glad you think that. It makes me really curious to hear why you think that. I, when I, I mean, I'm, I'm floored, first of all. It's such a special opportunity. Because I've, I've viewed this film as kind of, I mean, I've tried to create something that has mainstream appeal because I, I would love to affect as many minds and hearts as possible. And so if I could sneak it into a bit more of a mainstream audience, that's incredibly ideal. That's the dream. And Tribeca is such an amazing leverage to do that and a platform to do that. So, I, yeah, what can I say? I'm just super grateful that, that they saw the value of this film and, and believe in, in its potential. Well, you have, And, you know, we have these... Yeah, go for it. Well, I was just going to say, you have great <clears throat> filmmaking sensibilities. It's not just yeah. a run-of-the-mill documentary. It looks very beautiful it's really well put together. It has like a true voice and artist behind it. And, mm. and I think when a documentary goes to that level, it just fits in so well with, with the Tribeca spirit. And it, it, this really is, this captures the spirit of Tribeca. It, it, it everything oh. about it. It's, it's, it's a great film. I love that. Thank you. Yeah, I really, I, I'm, I haven't felt very inspired by most of the environmental films that I come across. Just kind of hitting that same tone over and over again of we're, we're screwed. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to offer something into this category of work that could be a little bit more hopeful and intimate and engaging, just different. Yeah, and I think it's doing that, so that's exciting. Well, what can we expect from you coming up? Well, so we have the premiere on June 15th, live in person. And one thing, the name is that uh, Grammy-winning musician Jacob Collier, who is the executive music producer of the film. He and the guy who composed the film, which is this amazing blind musician, Justin Coughlin, they wrote an original song, a theme song for the film, and they'll be performing that live at the screening. So that's super cool. And then the film will be available virtually through Tribeca from the 16th through the 23rd. So as many folks as we can get to view it through that platform would be awesome. And then beyond that, we're just trying to create the festival strategy and then sell the film and figure out how we can get it viewed by as many people as possible and then develop some sort of impact campaign strategy which likely will begin in LA trying to bring together a number of, you know, city leaders and planners with community activists and scientists and see what, see what can come from initiating dialogue between different people. Yeah. Well, Emmett, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really hope everybody checks it out. If not at Tribeca, I hope that it hits a festival near you or you get to see it online digitally. It's it, it's a fantastic film. I hope everybody checks it out. I really do. Yay. Thank you so much, Robert. Really Thank appreciate you. it. During my time getting to cover Tribeca this year, I also got to do a little sit-down with John Borston 
uh, talking about the parallax view, the criteria in the vinyl, uh, all that. So I have some uh, extra special bonus coverage on uh, on this Tribeca 2021. It, it all happened at the same time. So let's let's check this out. Well, John, are you excited to be talking about the Parallax View this many years later? Well, I didn't expect to be. I'll put it that way. It is amazing the life this movie's had, you know. Um, came back. I guess we're reliving the same. It's like Groundhog Day, you know. You get sentenced to relive your life, and we're going through the same kinds of paranoia and angst that we had back then in the 70s. Have you noticed that things have dramatically changed or do you think that we're kind of in this hyperloop and really nothing has changed since the 70s? Well, that's a good question, you know, and, and it's worth asking. And it's kind of one of the reasons to look at the movie is to ask yourself that question. Because on the one hand, it would never have occurred to anyone back then that a president would deny an election and say that the election was illegal. I mean, that's just beyond the pale. Uh, Nixon got, you know, Nixon got bounced for bugging the an office of, of uh, his opponent and lying about it. So uh, the crime was so much smaller than having a mob descend on the Capitol and pretend and saying the election was stolen. In that sense, things have gotten uh, dramatically worse. But on the other hand, that was in the 70s then. You know, John Kennedy was killed and his, his brother was killed and Martin Luther King was killed and Malcolm X was killed and... Uh, um, a lot of uh, martyrs. Um, so uh, take your pick, you know, which is worse. <laughs> but I think there's an area of, of uh, paranoia, you know, a, a sense of paranoia isn't quite the right word because paranoia implies that you're afraid of something that isn't real. But the scary thing about this is that it might be real, you know, what's going to happen next, you know. Um, maybe the difference, though, a little bit was back in, this, back in those days, uh, we were going through Vietnam, but before Vietnam, you know, we'd been the good guys. So don't forget, and we, we had this whole history of being saving the, the, the Europe and and um, being the champion of the of the good people. And then um, and then came Vietnam, but we had that memory in our in our heads, and and it's something that we'd love to go back to, and that feeling of being one of the good guys and of the glorious. Uh, glorious goal that we were all going for it's something that we all yearn for so um one of the things about this parallax view is it captures that yearning and also the dread for the future what's going to happen the desire to recapture whatever that lost thing was um, i don't know if you this, michael small's music has just been released as a, a vinyl um that was the original motivation for this call i believe um, and that's interesting because Michael Small had that problem as a composer, how to create music which captured that sense of uh, nostalgia for something, uh, a yearning, and also that sense of dread, um, which he did very well. And when was the last time that you actually heard the music for this film? Because this is the first vinyl release for this, and... Were you shocked that they were finally going to put it out? And really, how did you get involved with this entire vinyl release? Well, I've been involved with the Criterion who just released the uh, whole movie, you know, and a much improved version. I, I was one of the people involved. I worked with Gordon Willis originally on the timing of the film when it came out, you know, the color timing. And I was then um, dragooned to help with the Criterion release to make sure that they got the color balance and the density right and all that. So, so I'd, been, I'd lived through the movie quite recently uh, in a pretty good version. I mean, Criterion's done a great job. And then um, the, the vinyl people connected, apparently it seems to be in the air, um, wanting to bring out the Michael Small music. Um, they asked me, actually, they wanted to know there's a sequence in the movie called the test sequence where Warren Beatty is supposed to be a, he's trying to enlist as an assassin and he's trying to convince him he's an assassin and he has to pass this test that they're giving him. And that begins with a voice saying, enter the room, sit down, put your hands on the chair. And that voice 
no one had, no one knew who that voice was. And they, they were doing recording. They were saying, who's that person? We need their permission. And I said, well, that was the director, Alan Kula, whose voice we'd used because we used it as a, as a work track, you know, and we'd gotten used to it and we liked it. It was both very uh, sort of objective and calm, but also had a little edge of dread to it. Um, and so, um, that's how I got involved with uh, the soundtrack release. Um, but it is remarkable because not many movies have a three-minute sequence like that in the middle. And um, the thing about that sequence was that was the heart of the movie. Um, I don't know. Uh, Warren Beatty is, is trying to infiltrate this uh, crew of assassins by enlisting as one of them. He takes this test and then... They set him up uh, to be, uh, it's like an Oswald situation where he's not really the killer. It turns out they have their own real killers and he's a sort of stand-in. So the whole point of this thing is that Warren Beatty, this investigative reporter, can pass this test to be a, a killer. Um, and what, what Pakula did was uh, he put the audience through that test. Um, I don't know that at the same around the same time there was that Stanley Kubrick movie. Um, um, uh, what was you know about uh, uh, with Malcolm McDowell? Um, Clockwork Orange. Uh, Clockwork Orange, right? Clockwork Orange had this had this a similar kind of test sequence where they opened pried his eyes open and flashed the horrible images while they played Beethoven to desensitize him and make him incapable of of hurting anybody anymore. But when Stanley Kubrick did it, he was cutting back and forth between Malcolm McDowell and the image he was seeing. It was really about Malcolm McDowell's reaction. When Alan Pakula did it, he was doing it about the audience's reaction. He wanted the audience to take the test themselves and realize that they had in them elements of this uh, killer. They could, in, you know, in the worst world, they could be that guy. So, um, he created this three-and-a-half-minute montage, which was a, a visual test, but it was basically a, a montage of ideas. They're reading your galvanic skin, res skin responses while you're looking at these images. And Michael Small had to write the music for that, which was really a great opportunity, a three-and-a-half-minute uh, suite or piece of music which captures all the emotions that go into being a, a, an assassin, you know, the, the the great sense of glory, the sense of things you've lost, the sense of wanting to of vengeance, but also uh, the sense of power and the sense of impotence, and all these conflicting emotions, which he captured beautifully in that piece, and which somehow is very evocative today because when this feeling, when we both feel great power and great impotence, given all these new technologies we have, but at the same time the sense that everything is out of our control and we're at the mercy of these forces beyond our control. So the Parallax View is about that, and uh, that score captures it beautifully, and the sort of the way the movie was, you know, laid out uh, does too. Fuller was a master of uh, sort of paranoid suspense, and uh, this is his best attempt at it. Getting to spend this much time kind of revisiting how you felt around Alan at the time, what would you say you learn the most from him work, working so closely with him on, on, on more than one project, frankly. Yes. You know, when I came to this, I was getting paid $50 a week as the AFI intern uh, to basically watch them make the movie. And Gordon Willis was just coming off uh, the Godfather, which, you know, and he, they wanted him to make the Godfather of thrillers. Uh, so, but when, when you're watching as a, as an intern, I had nothing to do but watch, but they were basically a movie set is full of people standing around watching and very competent people who love to work hard, feeling kind of frustrated that they can't be doing more at any given moment. So when you're standing there as a helpless intern, um, people don't actually take very kindly to that. It kind of, it kind of is kind of a reminder of, uh, of what that they should be doing more. And it's also a challenge to them. What is this person doing? He's standing around with us. He doesn't deserve it. So I got kind of kind of shut out of things for quite a while. I became friendly with the script supervisor, Karen Wookie, who was a wonderful woman and kind of the key to making the thing hold together. And um, I learned a lot from her. And then um, 
Gordon discovered, he, he was impressed at how nicely I got on with Karen, and he took me in under his wing as one of the sort of camera crew. And so I got to learn, sort of sit at his feet, and um, we took to going out in the evenings because uh, he lived in the East Coast. And so we didn't have a lot to do in the evening, and we'd go out and sit and talk, and he'd let him, I'd try to have him tell me about movies. Mostly we talked about Parallax View. So I learned a lot from Gordon Willis. And then also Alan Pakula was the guy who hired me. And um, he's a wonderful man. And they had two completely different mentalities about movie making, but they, were, they inter, interlocked beautifully. You know, they really had each other's back and they, they made up for each other's weaknesses and they fortified each other in wonderful ways. Um, so I, I saw all that. And then I went on, I, I, wrote, a, I wrote another movie that uh, actually... I, I was a documentary filmmaker when I got this $50 gig. And then I, I went on and I ended up writing a, screen, a screenplay, Dream Lover. It was a, a thriller that Pakula directed that he and I produced together. And um, uh, Michael Small did the music for that one too. So I did go on and, and see this, another, you know, had more, uh, had more of a life. But the first time, I thought all, they, all the movies were made this way. And it turned out that this movie was a, a, a study in chaos. Um, Gordon Willis said it was the most chaotic, disorganized movie he'd ever worked on. And that's that he didn't like the movie. But it was kind of a miraculously, Pakula managed to pull it all together anyway. Um, the reason it was chaotic was because it was shot during a writer's strike with only half a script. Um, the Warren Beatty had, they had a player pay deal with Warren Beatty, which meant you had to pay him whether or not you used him. And they asked him if he would delay it for a month so they could fix up the script, and he said no. So they had to just start shooting with whatever they had and sort of make it work. And so they were rewriting on the set a lot. And uh, there would be X scenes, you know, the, the script supervisor numbers all the scenes, and that tells the editor where to put them. She was using X scenes, which meant she didn't know heck where the heck they went. If she didn't know where they went, nobody knew where they went. So... Uh, but, and through it all, you know, Alan had this idea in his head of what it all was, what it all was and Gordy had a way of, of shooting it so that it would hold together even if you restructured it because he discovered, he called it a jump cut movie. Uh, instead of having a lot of establishing shots and, and flowing, long flowing uh, imagery leading one to the other, he, he shot it as, as a series of cuts which could be... Um, juxtaposed in certain ways. Like, for instance, he made sure that the field sizes of the uh, close-ups were similar enough that you could go from one scene to another scene by going close-up to close-up and not be jarred by that. Uh, and he, he sort of very carefully conceived it as a movie that you could, as he said, slice and dice. Um, so uh, that was a real education You've gone on to do writing, a lot of producing. What can we expect from you coming up? Well, I'm a writer now. I've been writing. I wrote a novel, Mabel and Me, about Mabel Norman and the movie business. And now I'm writing a memoir about my grandfather, who was involved in the uh, Leo Frank, uh, Leo Frank lynchings back in the in the teens, and then involved in the riots in, Atlanta, in Tulsa uh, in the twenties. So. I'm trying to bring that to life. Uh, John, I want to thank you so much for coming on here today. I hope everybody goes and picks up both the new Criterion uh, release of the Parallax View and this amazing vinyl release. Both of them, <laughs> you can tell a lot of heart went into this and you can tell all your contributions, John. So thank you so much for coming on here today. Well, thanks for having me. And it was a wonderful movie. And in its odd way, it does have a life, you know. It's it really worth reliving now. I've always been such a big fan of this film. So I'm really excited. It's getting a new life and, and a new audience. And I hope it continues to be studied as the years go on. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening. Uh, check out all the films that played this year at Tribeca 2021. Uh, there is some really fantastic films from the documentaries to the narrative stuff there. There's stuff that's just, it's worth it. 
and uh, and you definitely need to be checking it out. It's always a festival that you should be keeping your eye on. Uh, this year had a particularly good slate, which means our uh, our festival coverage coming up in the fall. Fantasia, TIFF, who knows, maybe even something like New York. I don't know what we're going to be covering yet, but uh, it's leading well into those. So I hope you join me then. I hope you join me next time. Uh, same bad place, same bad channel right here. Subscribe, tell your friends uh, where the film called podcast. This concludes our broadcast day.